Good morning, Calvary Vista. How are you doing? So good to see you at 8 a.m. I always think 8 a.m. is like the most godly service ever. You guys are amazing. Um, it is good to be here. I pastor in Davis. Anybody familiar with Davis? And uh, also, I travel and speak on mental health and suffering in Christianity. And so uh, that's where I met Rob. Rob's become a good friend. He sends his love, he's amazing. You guys have such a good pastor, amen? Amen. And uh, this morning, I would love to open up to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. If you have your Bible, uh, you can open it up to Genesis 2, and we'll look at verse 25. Trying to get my iPad open. Technology. Jesus, thank you so much for this Sunday morning. We're not here out of routine. We are here to meet with you, to hear from you, to grow as followers of Jesus in a complicated world with hard and challenging realities that come our way. I pray, Father, this morning that you would bless every person here, that you would speak to them exactly what they need to hear for their lives and their hearts and their challenges and whatever internally they're struggling with. God, give us grace as we have faced this really hard moment in our world. I pray for grace on all of us. Grace on our families, grace on our communities, grace on our churches, grace on Calvary Vista that is doing such a good work. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. We love you, Jesus. And we're here to hear from you in your name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Shame is the topic that I felt like I was supposed to teach on this morning. And shame is a powerful emotion that all of us feel at various moments of life. I remember being uh, in grade school and I grew up in a broken home. And so in my home, there was a lot of pain and hardship and challenges And I remember going to school, especially in my younger years in grade school, and I wasn't the coolest kid. I wasn't, you know, popular in grade school. And a lot of the students made fun of me. Little did they know that deep down inside of me, there was this fragility and and already pain and brokenness. And so going to school for me was a way to kind of have a safe haven apart from my home that had a lot of challenges. And as I went to school day after day after day, five days a week, grade school, I think some students go four days a week now, which is amazing. God bless them. But in my time, it was five days a week. It was a way to kind of breathe. And yet kids making fun of me added to my pain. And also I began to understand shame. I remember some years back, I planted a church in Eugene, Oregon called Ecclesia, and it was amazing, pastored there for 10 years. I remember sitting in a pastor's meeting, and we were talking about counseling people in our church. We had quite a large church, and so we did a lot of pastoral counseling. And the pastor, Ian Stipe, who was the head of pastoral counseling, he came in just burdened. And so we said, hey, what's going on with the people you're counseling? Obviously, you're carrying a heavy burden. And he said, and I never forget this, shame is is such a powerful reality in people's lives. And it holds back so many people as he conveyed kind of his burden. 
It holds back so many people from being free and whole and really living out the reality of forgiveness that's found in Jesus. Shame is an incredibly destructive emotion. It can paralyze different facets of human life. It can suffocate our freedom to be whole and flourishing followers of Jesus. If, if I were to give you a definition of shame, here it is, and I think it's going to be on the screen. You can write this down. Shame is an emotion that tells us that we are bad. Shame attacks our identity as a person, and it also blinds us from our value as humans created in the image of God. Shame says, I am bad. I am unworthy. I am unlovable. I am flawed. I am defective as a human being, usually based and rooted in some sort of situation or experience or failure that has come about in our lives. Often when we talk about shame, it's hard to kind of differentiate between shame and guilt. And so you're like, what's the difference between shame and guilt? Great question. I'm so glad you asked. Shame and guilt actually are really connected throughout the pages of Scripture. When we do wrong or when we feel like we've failed or we we have some sort of embedded flaw in the narrative of our heart or our mind, oftentimes when we feel like that, there's a web of emotions. And so the Bible unpacks that. We often feel shame, guilt, discouragement, condemnation. But if I were to give you kind of a simplistic differentiation between shame and guilt, it would be this. Shame says, I am bad. Guilt says, I have done bad. One is focused on my identity and my personhood as as somebody creating the image of God. And the other one is focused on kind of my performance or my flaws or my imperfections. But here's the thing about shame and guilt. Both of these can have a devastating effect on our life. Guilt can leave us stuck in our mistakes and wrongdoings. And shame can leave us devaluing and internally assaulting our identity as people created by God. So my question this morning, and and this is a question I'd love to answer, is What is the narrative of shame and what does the Bible teach about shame? It's interesting to me, Genesis chapter 2 verse 25, if you're there, that before sin ever entered human existence, the Bible talked about shame. Before there was ever defectiveness or flaws or sin or wrongdoing, the Bible mentions this powerful emotion called shame. And we pick up here in Genesis 2, verse 24. And let me give you a little context. God created man. God created woman. God performed the first marriage ceremony in verse 24. He says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. So everything's good. Everything is in harmony with God's intention. There's symmetry and just harmonious relationship with God, with one another. And then the Bible says, verse 25, and often we read this and we're like, what does that mean? Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And it's a verse that's kind of confusing. confusing. It's like, okay, here's Adam and Eve and we understand they're married now and, and the nakedness, that all makes sense. But why say they felt no 
shame. This is the first mention of shame in the entire Bible. And not the last. It's actually, it shows up quite often in the, New Te- or in the Old Testament post this event uh, in Genesis 2, 24 and 25. The term shame for you Bible students who like to get into the nitty gritty, I studied six years of biblical languages, so I always think this is fun. The term shame comes from a Hebrew term, bosh. Say that, bosh. And there's a lot of variation and depths and layers of meaning, but if I were to give you just a basic idea of the biblical Hebrew uh, definition of shame, it would be this, to fall into disgrace normally through failure. And if you know anything about biblical culture, it was an honor-shame society. It's kind of like America's becoming an honor-shame society. If you do wrong, we're going to honor you. But if you do, I mean, if you do right, pardon me, we're going to honor you. But if you do wrong, we're going to cancel you and we're going to publicly shame you. And so that was the culture of the Bible. If you did wrong, it wasn't like you could hide it in this culture. You would be publicly shamed or dishonored. And that's kind of the root idea of this term shame. But what's interesting is we see verse 25, the beginning of it says, Adam and his wife were both naked. Nakedness is used throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for guilt or shame. So here, though, there is no sin, there is no failure, there is no imperfection. Humans were innocent, they still were living in perfect harmony with all of God's direction and design. So why does God bring up this term? Because it's going to have an important picture later on in scripture. But when he says here that they were both naked, it's conveying an ease with one another. They had nothing to hide. They had no guilt, therefore they had no shame. Nakedness was not a shameful condition in the Garden of Eden. In fact, Adam and Eve at this point were in perfect harmony with God relationally and spiritually. And so they were uncovered because they had nothing to hide. And this means that there was no emotion around guilt or shame. They had no feelings that were devaluing their identity. They were in perfect symmetry emotionally with everything that God intended. And that's what God's conveying here. It's actually a beautiful picture. And it teaches us that shame in God's original design, shame had no place in the garden. Shame was not meant for for God's people in the garden, this place that God designed for humans to flourish in. But here's the problem. Verse 25, we don't know how long it lasted, but it didn't last forever because then we get to chapter three. And chapter three is interesting because chapter three begins this story of the unraveling of human innocence and and kind of perfection at this point into the story of sin. And you and I know the story of sin is not great, right? Because it's invaded our lives, it's affected all of us, our communities, our families, our own identity and how we think of ourselves. So sin enters into human existence. The second time shame is mentioned is in chapter three. Let's, just for fun, because we love the Bible and we love Jesus, let's pick up in verse one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? 
The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden, but God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat of it, Uh, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable to gain wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked, so they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves." Let's hone in on verse seven. So you go, uh, number one, life without shame, Genesis 2.24, to second, life with shame, Genesis 3.7. Remember what I said about the term nakedness? It was actually a metaphor for guilt and shame and wrongdoing in the Bible. That's why he picks up with this term in verse seven. Adam and Eve chose to live life outside of God's design and direction. Satan lured them in through various temptations, wisdom, and it was good, and it was pleasing to the eyes, as though they were missing out. The interesting thing about being a human is God gave the garden everything in it for them to enjoy, except for one thing, And that's the one thing that they were focused on in this story. Not all the other things that were blessings for human flourishing and blessings for their own relational and spiritual flourishing. They tended to focus on what they did not have. And so that led them to choose to do something that was outside of God's direction and design. In fact, they lived and chose to do what was contrary to what God had told them. And so the term nakedness shows up here as a sign of shame and guilt. It ex- In other words, the term nakedness was like an exposure of their flaw and their failures and their imperfection. Adam and Eve, after the fall, felt the devastating effects of life contrary to God's design, which we could say is a good definition for sin. Sin is life lived contrary to God's design. And so they chose that. They, they chose not to trust God's guidance. They tro- chose not to trust God's design. And as a result, they felt the spiritual, relational, psychological, and emotional consequences that we all see in chapter three of Genesis. I want you to notice in this section, a, a, a progression of shame And as we're thinking about shame in our own life and how it has power and influence, I want you to notice how this is similar to how all of us respond to the reality of shame. First of all, you can write this down if you're a note taker. Why not? If you're not a note taker, you might as well write it down too. I think it's helpful. Number one, number one, verse seven tells us they became aware of their nakedness. Their eyes were opened. For the first time, they were at ease. There was no emotional, relational, or spiritual walls. There was no guilt or shame, verse 25. But now their eyes were open to their nakedness. And then secondly, verse seven, they felt shame for the first time. It was the first time that human beings felt the emotion of shame. 
Third, I want you to notice this because this is really important. Verse 8, they hid from God. They hid from God. Now think about in our lives, like all of us, pastors, we're no different than you. We're followers of Jesus growing in process just like you. I want you to notice their response. They hid from God. The human response to shame is most often hiding. We hide from God. We hide from people. We hide from community. We hide from our own value and purpose as human beings created in the image of God to follow Jesus in this world. We tend to escape our shame through hiding. And here's the thing about hiding. And if you study shame and just the psychology behind it, hiding from your shame will only increase your shame. Just as it did in this story. I mean, the Bible unearths so much truth and wisdom around this idea in our lives. Hiding from our shame will only increase our shame. Think about it. When we hide from God and something is gnawing at our soul, that gnawing in our soul is never alleviated, solved, helped by us trying to hide from God. This is like the first hide-and-go-seek story. You know, kids grow up and they learn hide and go seek. It's a fun game. You know, you play it as a kid and you probably play it as a parent with your kids, which is awesome. Do that if they love it for sure. This is the original hide and go seek story. But here's the thing. You and I can't really hide from God. So they, they became aware of their nakedness. They felt shame. They hid from God and they made coverings, verse 7. All of this is really important for the the rest of the story of Scripture. They tried to alleviate the problem of shame by self-protecting and self-atoning. That's religion. God, we've failed, or, or, you know, we feel this. We've failed. We've done wrong. So we as humans have to do something to protect ourselves. We as humans have to do something to atone for our own flaws and failures and imperfections and sins. And so we begin to self-protect and self-atone. We create our own coverings. And then notice, not only did they become aware, they felt shame, they made coverings, they hid from God, but they blamed. This is interesting, verses 11 through 13, they blamed. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? This is God having the conversation. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit of the tree and I ate it. So the guy blames the woman. Verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate it. And so the man blames the woman. The woman blames Satan. You have this kind of blame game. But why do we blame when we feel guilty? Why do we somehow put our own choices on other people? Here's why. Because blaming is a defense mechanism. It's a self-protection. We don't want to be exposed We don't want people to know our shame or guilt. And so we blame as an act of justification to defer responsibility. And we have to be aware of this in ourselves. Because we can project 
we can project our own feelings of shame or guilt or failure in our relationships on other people that are totally innocent. We might be frustrated at ourselves. We might be discouraged. We might feel downcast. We may, we may be depressed because of this gnawing in our soul. And so we take it out on other people, but they're innocent. And it's a way for us to hide and cover our own feelings of shame or guilt. But uh, the interesting part of this kind of justification and deferring responsibility is we're all guilty, right? Like we all do this. I mean, I even think this week, uh, just at a relational interaction where I was just kind of bummed out about something and struggling with just the weight and complexity of the last year and a half, a little bit stressed. And I, t- I projected that on somebody that I care about. And I had to apologize because I realized, oh, I'm just dealing with my own stuff internally, but I'm putting it on this other person and that person is innocent. And they're like, wait a minute, Wesley, why, why are you pouring out your stress on me? You should be processing that in a healthy way with God before you come to me and project that on me. But this is how we function as humans. And so shame had no place in the garden but shame has a place outside of the garden. Shame had no place in God's original design, but shame has a place in our world, in our culture, in our homes, in our communities, in our own lives. We feel and experience this reality of shame. And so you're like, Wesley, Wesley, it's great to know the theology, but what do we do with shame? How do we process it and navigate it as people that are forgiven, that believe in Jesus, that are trying to follow Jesus in this complex, broken, fallen world. Here's how, notice number three, and we'll, we'll skip to verse 21 because I think this is the answer that we see throughout the pages of scripture. Number three, redemption from shame, Genesis 2.21. Re- redemption from shame. I, w- I want you to notice verse 21 and then I'm gonna kind of paint a picture of God's response to shame. It says, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. This is a beautiful picture and response from God of how he wanted to deal with human shame and guilt. I want you to notice kind of the response uh, to, uh, from God, pardon me, to shame leading up to this point. First of all, we understand what we do as humans, but we need to understand what God does for humans who feel shame. Notice the first thing, God pursued them, verses eight and nine. God pursued Adam and Eve. He begins, they hear his presence, the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, And they hid from the Lord, but God was present because he was pursuing them. And when we feel shame and guilt in our life, the most important thing we can do is, number one, recognize that God is not stiff-arming us like in football. By the way, this is the second week of football, so I thought I better give a football illustration. When running backs are running and and somebody's trying to tackle them, they stiff arm them, push them down, try to get them away. God never stiff arms us. 
God pursues us. This morning, God is not evading you or stiff-arming you. God is pursuing you in all of your imperfections and flaws and everything that makes you you. God is pursuing you. And the most important thing for us to recognize is not just God is pursuing us, but when we feel this emotion, we need to move toward God rather than away from God. Our orientation is so important and valuable. Our movement is so important and valuable. Toward God is the way that we go when we feel shame and guilt. And God because he is gracious and merciful and quick to forgive and slow to anger, God, with an open heart and outstretched arms, invites us toward him in a relationship through the feelings and emotions of failure in our life. Second, God not only pursued them, verses eight and nine, God invited conversation. Look at verse nine. But the Lord God called to the man and he said, where are you? I always read that and I'm like, did God not really see where they were? Of course he did. God knew exactly where they were. God said, where are you? Because he wanted to invite conversation. He wanted them to begin to process and think about what they did and what that means in relationship to him and talk to him again. So, One of the things about shame is that if we hide it, it will only grow and increase and become a stronger reality gnawing inside of us. But if we talk to God about it, listen, one of the, one of the reasons that therapy in, in America is so popular is because humans were created to talk. Humans were created to talk about the deep, hard stuff of life. We were not created to suppress it and stuff it. We were created to talk about it. And I think one of the most beautiful things about prayer is that God invites us to talk to him about everything. Whether we have actual shame or perceived shame, whether we failed or somebody put some sort of shame upon our life through an action or words, God has given us this beautiful gift of prayer where we can honestly and openly communicate every emotion and reality in our soul to him because we were created to communicate. And so when it comes to shame, we have to bring our shame before God. We have to move toward God. We have to talk to God. And here's the thing about uh, communicating with God. God already knows everything going on inside of us. He sees our struggle. He sees how shame could maybe be paralyzing your life. He sees how shame could be distorting your own view of your value and your purpose in this world. And he invites us like Adam and Eve in the garden to begin to conversate with him in an open and honest way because God is a God who wants us, his kids, his followers to communicate with him. Now, oftentimes when we think about prayer, we're like, oh, I got to be super theological. I have to give God my best. I don't know if you've read the Psalms, but 40% of the Psalms are Psalms of lament. 40%. Lament is the most open, honest, emoting, 
communication to God about all struggles, all frustrations, all challenges, all pain that I've ever seen. God gave us 40% of the Psalms because he knows that's like a lot of our life. A lot of our life is lived in a broken world, feeling the effects of brokenness. And so we need an opportunity to communicate that to God in an open and honest way. And then finally, God, verse 21, God covered them. God pursued them. God invited conversation. God covered them. I want you to notice back in verse seven that they covered themselves, kind of self-atoning. They sewed fig leaves together. They made coverings for themselves. But then in verse 21, God's like, no, that's a man-made covering. Let me make you a better covering from me. This is redemption. This is the beginning of the storyline of God saving and redeeming human beings throughout all of scripture. And it happened in a moment of failure and imperfection and guilt and shame. And so God comes along and he pursues them. He communicates with them and he covers them. Like this is where Christianity is so amazing. That in the midst of all that makes us human in this world, in the midst of all of our failures that we remember that are embedded in our brains and our hearts and the emotions that we carry with the effects of that, that God looks down on us and he pursues us with his son, Jesus Christ. God did not want Adam and Eve to hide from their shame and self-atone for their shame. God wanted to redemptively cover their shame because God valued Adam and Eve. And God wants to redemptively cover your shame because God values you. And maybe you don't value you because you've allowed the narrative of shame in your mind and heart to become more dominant as a perspective than the perspective of God towards you. The perspective of God towards you is, it doesn't matter what you've done. Your sins, your flaws, your past, your failures, God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to deal with the reality of human shame. You and I were not meant to carry our wrongdoings. We were not meant to carry our imperfections alone. Guilt and shame were too heavy a burden to carry. Only Jesus could carry the burden and free us from shame. So Jesus came. And what did Jesus do? He died on a cross. And what did they do to Jesus? They stripped him of his clothing. He was naked on the cross as a picture not only of what they did in, you know, with the Romans and capital punishment, but also this was a picture of redemption from human shame. This powerful metaphor that started in Genesis chapter two and Genesis chapter three and, and threads its way through scripture. Jesus knew that we could not atone for our shame. We could not atone for our sins and our imperfections. Only Jesus could do that, so Jesus redemptively forgives all of our shame. Amen? But here's what we need to do. We have to believe that. We have to believe that the cross of Jesus Christ 
is the answer to our shame so that we no longer have to hide from God. We no longer have to hide from one another. We no longer have to hide from our value and purpose as human beings creating the image and likeness of God. Now we can live in freedom and forgiveness and worth because of Jesus. Every time I travel to a church, and I travel and teach often, I I try never to just use canned messages. I, I say, God, give me a word for this church. And as I was praying about coming to Calvary Vista this weekend, I said, God, give me a word for this church. And God spoke to me. He says, I want you to teach on shame because there are people that are paralyzed and not living in the freedom and worth of value that I have for them and that my son died to give them. And so I pray if there is somebody in here today that needs to live free from shame, moving toward God, talking to God, believing that you're forgiven in Jesus Christ, all the the narrative that is holding you down and holding you back. I want you to believe what Jesus has done for you today and walk out of this door in the newness and freedom of life because Jesus was stripped and died to forgive all of your sin and to free you from the human emotion of shame that so powerfully holds us back from being all that God has called us to be. Father, I pray this morning that you would just speak deeply into the depths and layers of every person's heart. That this narrative of shame that we see in the story of Adam and Eve, it's such a parallel to our lives. Their responses how they acted post this emotion. And, and Lord, I, I just pray for those who are stuck, paralyzed, burdened, heavy, discouraged, living in this constant exchange internally of shame and, and the past. I pray that today, right here, right now in this place, that Jesus Christ And the cross of Christ would free people from the paralyzation and the power and the destructive nature that shame could have on our lives. May they believe that they are forgiven and valued and set free this morning. And I pray that if there's anybody here that has never believed in Jesus, that right here, right now, that you would say, Jesus Christ, I believe that you came to this earth, that you died on the cross to forgive all of my sin and wrongdoing and guilt and shame and give me freedom to be in a relationship with you, to move towards you, to talk to you, to walk with you, to love you, to serve you and to be forgiven by you. And this morning, I believe in Jesus. Father, thank you for the opportunity to be here. Encourage every heart in this place in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. Thanks for having me. Much love to you guys.